Good afternoon, Drinking Mommies. I'm Whitney, founder of the group Drinking Mommies, and joining us today, we have Amber calling in from Alabama. Hello. Nicole calling in from California. Hey. And our special guest speaker, the Assistant Director of Donor Relations with Operation Underground Railroad, Hayden Paul, calling in from Utah. Yes, glad to be here. Our show topic today is going to be something that, honestly, a lot of people are going to have a little bit of an issue with one way or the other because it's a not an easy topic to talk about, but it is absolutely one that every parent should know, understand, and I think we need to talk about it more because when it comes to being a parent, sometimes there are things that we don't want to address, and one of them is child sex slavery and human trafficking. Our show topic today is what every parent should know about human trafficking, which is why I am so grateful that we have our guest speaker today who is joining an amazing nonprofit organization, Operation Underground Railroad, which I might refer to as OUR interchangeably throughout the podcast. Um, Hayden, go ahead and give our listeners a little bit of background information on you and how you became involved with OUR. Happy to. So uh, I grew up here in, in Salt Lake City, Utah. And, um, you know, this wasn't a cause. It's not a cause that like in high school or middle school, you're like, oh, I want to be part of an organization like this. It's not an, a normal thing. Right. But um, after high school, I, I served a two year Christian mission um, in Budapest, Hungary. Um, and that was like the first time I kind of got into the world and I got to see outside of the United States. And, um, you know, after I got home as well, I started a, a video production company and I traveled the world and, and made videos. And it was during my travels to India and Africa and to Thailand and, and parts of the Middle East where I was open to this idea of human trafficking and human slavery. Um, and it, it really shocked me. And it, it was really when I, I, I was in Thailand and I actually went to an aftercare home um, and it, it wasn't an OUR affiliated aftercare home, but a different one. And I finally saw it for what it truly was and the horrors of human trafficking. And when I got home from that trip, I just was never the same. And I started to look up um, organizations and I, I found Operation Underground Railroad and saw the good that they were doing. And so I signed up as a volunteer and um, as time went on, a, a, um, something, uh, a position opened up here and I um, decided to, um, you know, make this a full-time job. And, you know, since then I've been here for about two years and um, my wife and I um, are expecting our first baby. So we're going to be, I'm going to be I, probably a drinking daddy as I've heard uh, parents, parenthood can be difficult. My mom always used to say like, you're going to drive me to drink. And so, um, I think but, every parent says that at yeah. some point or another. <laughs> of course. So um, we're excited about that. And then the last thing I'll share is um, last year I enlisted in the United States Marine Corps. Um, and I decided to serve as an infantry reservist here um, and then work full time for Operation Underground Railroad. So that's a little bit about me, more than you probably wanted to know. I think that's great. I mean, honestly, it for me, one of the biggest things about going through, you know, your timeline of how you came to where you are today is that you saw a problem, but instead of putting your head in the sand when something was uncomfortable, you did something about it, which... I mean, that's commendable. And so mm -hmm. now you, you're essentially serving your country in two different capacities. You're serving 
you know, as a Marine, and you're also serving to protect children and, well, people from human trafficking, I guess, not just in the U.S., but internationally mm -hmm. as well. Um, now, for some people who are listening right now, you're probably familiar with OUR or maybe saw the documentary that's available on Amazon Prime called um, Operation Toussaint. Toussaint, yeah, Toussaint. I always pronounce this wrong. Depends on if you speak French or not, you know. <laughs> I do not. Uh, don't mind me, listeners. Like, I. I literally, <laughs> I can barely pronounce half of the things in the English language half the time. So, um, the documentary is actually where I started um, becoming involved with OUR. I did some outside research and I said, you know, how, how do I become involved in human trafficking? And I started looking up documentaries and I watched a couple different ones and, you know, there's some good ones out there, but I don't, none of them really struck home for me. And so I did some Google searching and that's where I found the one on Tim Ballard, the founder of OUR. And I watched it and I was like, this is it. This is the organization I want to put my time and my effort into. And if you aren't familiar with OUR, they're amazing, but Hayden's going to have a lot more information than I am on that. So Hayden, would you mind going into the history of OUR, why it was founded, what role does it serve in our community, and what programs and services are available? Yeah, of course. So Operation Underground Railroad was um, officially formed in 2014. Um, by a man by the name of Tim Ballard. He worked for the United States government in the CIA and Department of Homeland Security. Um, and it was during that time that he was introduced to human trafficking and, and specifically uh, online child exploitation. And um, what happened was uh, during this time, I mean, for obvious reasons, every country has a jurisdiction and, and, red tape, obviously, just to kind of protect, protect people and make sure that we're not overstepping bounds. But what would happen is they would always be able to find um, kids who were being trafficked. Um, but unless they're they could tie an American pedophile to them. So they would they would do these investigations and, and follow sus suspected American pedophiles into foreign countries, and they'd find the children. Um, but unless they were able to check all the boxes to arrest the pedophile um they weren't able to arrest him and then also the children they had no jurisdiction over the children there they were being harmed and so um what happened is tim ballard decided to leave uh his um you know his stable job uh, left his pension and um started a nonprofit called operation underground railroad um, that acts as an assistance to existing law enforcement in the fight against human trafficking. And the reason why it's so effective is because human trafficking, it's a global problem and it requires a global solution. Um, but for, you know, reasons, governments working together, uh, especially foreign governments, it can be a very slow process. And a lot of times when it comes to these types of issues, like things need to be done quickly. And uh, OUR kind of acts as a liaison um, and acts as a support to existing law enforcement. So we're not like a vigilante group going through, kicking down doors and uh, arresting traffickers and, and rescuing children. But um, we act as, as that support element um, 
And so that's, that's kind of the role that we play. We, I mean, we are currently in 28 states and 29 countries um, where we've assisted law enforcement in uh, rescue. And then also we provide aftercare in all of those places as well. And so it's, um, it's, it's has a huge reach and, and we're probably, uh, we, we hope to be able to be involved in, in solving this issue in every community around the world. Absolutely. And I don't think a lot of people necessarily realize when they hear of human trafficking, it, it, it just leaves a bad taste in your mouth, even just to say it, especially when you're dealing with child sex trafficking. Um, I don't think a lot of people realize how many victims are estimated to be out there, not just in the United States, but around the world. Um, Hayden, could you share with our audience some of the statistics on, and, and got it, these, I know that these aren't exact estimates um, or statistics, but rather that they are estimates. Um, how many children versus how many adults are estimated to be victims of human trafficking in the U.S.? Yeah, so in the U.S., um, it's estimated that there's hundreds of over 200,000 victims of human trafficking. That's, that's uh, men, women, and children. And when it comes to children, it can be um, anywhere between 100 and 300,000. Like I said, these estimates can be hard. And also the definition of trafficking. Um, trafficking has so many faces, and that's what makes it so difficult to fight. So, uh, you know, it's not it's not, I'll tell you, there's not a hundred children in the United States that have had like a, a taken Liam Neeson experience, right? A lot of times people think that's, that's what all human trafficking is, is um, a child who comes from a good family and a good home and is taken by a stranger and trafficked to either a foreign country or some other place. Um, but human trafficking can be a lot more subtle than that. And, uh, and that's why it's it's very difficult to put estimates on. Um, that said, though, it is it is very pervasive, and um, I don't have the exact number in front of me, but I want to say that uh, last year there were thirty thousand tips of human trafficking, and um, those were coming in through the human trafficking hotline in the United States, and um, that around ten thousand of them were uh, confirmed cases. Uh, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure on those stats, but you can actually look them up and just um, Polaris. They do the, they run the national human trafficking hotline and you can, they, they put out reports every year about how many calls they've got in, how many of them were verified. And you can check those stats out yourself. Those numbers are absolutely staggering. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and to kind of put it into perspective, I'm located here in Texas, right? Texas is a border state mm -hmm. and it is estimated that there are currently about 313,000 victims of human trafficking in my state alone, just where I'm at. 313,000, like these are mm -hmm. not small numbers. Um, and of those for sex trafficking victims of minors, it's estimated that there's approximately 79,000. Mm -hmm. That's just my state. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like this, this problem is huge it doesn't get talked about enough. And no one wants to think that it's happening in their backyard or that they're ever going to know someone who is a victim or be a victim themselves. Um, and then that's, that's my next question for you then, Hayden. Are there certain 
individuals who are at greater risk of being the victim of human trafficking, whether it has to do with mm -hmm. demographics or education or household um, makeup um, that you could share with our audience? Yeah. So people that are in, you know, more impoverished circumstances or have a lower income are going to be uh, more prone to being victims of human trafficking. Um, just because, you know, if someone is desperate economically, then it's easier to um, manipulate and coerce someone into doing something that maybe they don't want to do. Um, and, you know, a lot of human trafficking, you know, can come in the form of exploiting someone um, and they're quote unquote willingly doing it. Um, but it's because they're in such a desperate situation and, and maybe use threats or, or, or false promises in order to coerce someone to do it. And so, uh, you know, uh, women make up the largest group of people who are trafficked, especially um, when it comes to sex trafficking. And then um, I can only speak worldwide. So the International Labor Organization estimates um, 40.3 million um, people are being trafficked worldwide and a quarter of that. So around 10 million are children. And this isn't, this is labor trafficking, sex trafficking, organ harvesting. And I think even forced marriage um, falls into that category as well. Um, and so there uh, it's hard because yes, there are more common groups or demographics of people um, and there are also geographic locations where human trafficking people are a greater risk. So here in the United States, some of the trafficking hubs, you could say, um, are Texas, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, um, uh, South Cal uh, Southern California. Um, but it's it's happening in every single state here in Utah. Um, we've given over a million dollars to um, Utah's Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force. And it has um, resulted in the identif identification and rescue of over 300 um, children or, or victims of human trafficking here. Um, and then the arrest of, of hundreds of, um, you know, uh, predators. So it, it happens anywhere. And like I said, it happens in so many different forms. And, and we can talk a little bit more about that um, later in this podcast of all the different ways that trafficking happens. But um, yeah, to answer your question, uh, yeah, more impoverished uh, children who grow up in or who are in group homes or in the foster system are of a greater risk as well. And runaways um, are commonly trafficked as well. So runaway teenagers, um, are the perfect, the perfect, um, you know, victim, I guess, of, of human trafficking. With, when you hear this information, it, it gets mm -hmm. hard, it gets hard. Mm -hmm. And especially when you think of the foster system and uh, there are so many problems with, I mean, even just being a, a household, like, so my son, I have, you know, one child, he's 10 and my husband and I were together, um, but we're busy a lot. And I, mm -hmm. I've noticed with my own child that some of his, his friends from school, um, they are very much would fall into these higher risk categories. Yeah. And so for me, it's, it's hard to not listen to this and then think about them. Mm -hmm. Um, which is just a point that I want to drive home. Like 
as you're listening to this information, like to our audience, it's not something that just be passive. Like there are people in your life who can fall into this category. Um, and you can help their children too. It's not even just about our children, you know, as parents or as soon to be parents, it's, it's all mm-hmm. children. Um, now you talked a little bit briefly Hayden about how human trafficking can be networked mm-hmm. globally. Um, can we go into a little bit more detail into where does human trafficking fall into organized yeah. crime as a whole? Yeah. So yeah, it, human trafficking, not all human trafficking falls in the organized crime category, right? You know, all, probably I'm not going to say the majority, but a large portion of human trafficking comes from, you know, um, impoverished family, uh, selling their daughter or their, or their son or whatever for sex in order to pay the bills, um, or, you know, abuse happening, um, outside of the family or, or in an orphanage or in places like this, like a lot of it wouldn't fall into like that broad, like organized crime, but organized crime definitely profits off of human trafficking, um, especially in places where, you know, down in Mexico, where the cartels are, or in Colombia, um, human trafficking in Europe as well. Um, And in Amsterdam, organized criminal networks definitely profit from that. And um, that's what makes this so uh, pervasive is it's it's actually very lucrative. for these organized um, criminal, uh, these criminal organizations, because, um, you know, you can only sell an illegal firearm once or an illegal drug once, right? And then you have to get more, but you can sell a human being over and over and over and over again, without having to replenish your supply. And so like, it's, it's very scalable in that way. So if you can get one person that could equals hundreds of thousands of dollars over uh, years of time or even months, depending. So it's, um, that's what makes it so difficult um, to fight is because it's so lucrative. And there's so much time being put into, um, you know, running or to, you know, finding new, new people to traffic and um, in hiding this, this very lucrative business. Well, and I don't think people understand how much of a network is really going on behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Like, I think people think, oh, well, there's just one location. They just keep the victims out. We just need to find this location. But mm-hmm. in actuality, they'll move mm-hmm. victims all over the place and not just within the state, but across state borders and mm-hmm. even across um, n- national lines. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how much information you have available on this, but um how much human trafficking has OUR seen happening across just like that, say the U S Mexico border Mm -hmm. and, and across state lines that you can talk about with our audience. Yeah. You, I mean, you can, you can look online and see the actual stats for um, the, like how many estimated undocumented people come across the border and not everyone who comes across the border undocumented is going to be, um, you know, human trafficking, be a trafficker or being trafficked. Um, but uh, you can only imagine, you know, that there are, it, I've, I've heard numbers like 10,000, an estimated 10,000 
um, children are being trafficked across the border. And there's different, there's different things that have been used, um, different ruses, um, and I guess business models, you could say, um, when it comes to trafficking across the border. But um, it's just, it's one of those numbers that if we knew it, and we saw it, we would probably be shocked. Um, And that's the thing that's hard when it comes to something like human trafficking is, uh, it was it, it was easier, you know, to document how terrible slavery was um, in the early American Americas and, you know, in Europe and stuff like that, because every slave was documented because it was it was backed by the federal government. And so they're like the, the government actually kept track of how many slaves and every slave owner had documentation on, you know, their property. And it's terrible. It's a terrible institution. But we have we can get more accurate numbers on how um, broad that number was. Um, but when it comes to something that is illegal and is hiding underneath, um, you know, our society, it's really hard to actually know what the what these numbers are. Um, but it is staggering. Um, and you can see, actually, and I think we're going to kind of lead into this, um, 40 million images of uh, child exploitation, child rape, um, videos and images were um, discovered online in 2019. I don't know what the number is going to be for 2020, but I mean, it's steadily rising. And so if you think about 40 million images and videos, um, like what... I mean, that's only going to be a part, not, not every interaction with a trafficked human being or a trafficked child is going to be videotaped and, and photographed. And so like how, how many, you know, and it's not every, every single one of those images and videos isn't necessarily a unique person who's being exploited and trafficked, but um, like the number is staggering and uh, we get glimpses here and there of how big it is, but we can never really know. I'm really glad that you brought up the, illicit images of children, you know, which is child pornography. Mm. Um, One thing that really struck me when watching the documentary on the founding of OUR was they brought up the statistic of how the U.S. was the biggest consumer and producer of child pornography, at least at the time of the documentary was made in the world. And it just, I can't help but sit there and think about how horrible that is when you're dealing with children, especially, I mean, you brought up earlier about runaways being a big source of victims for child um, sex slavery. And, you know, I'm actually going through and I'm scrolling through some of OUR statistics right now. And they're like, in 2017, 25,000 runaways were reported to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children just in the US. And of that 25,000, one in seven. Mm-hmm. And when you're dealing with the other factor of poverty, you know, the thought of money, like how many of these children are being forced into producing this, this horrible content that's being consumed? It's, it's sickening as a mm-hmm. mom to, to hear this. And it breaks my heart, mm-hmm. you know, and I know it, pornography is a very touchy subject for a lot of people. I mean, Mm -hmm. even with consenting adults, you know, you talk about pornography, like everyone's got various degrees of what they think is right and wrong or opinions just on porn with adults, you know, consenting adults. Yeah. Um, But you, you have, and I won't go down a rabbit hole here, but you, you have a lot of free porn sites, right. That are available online, not calling out anyone in particular, Mm -hmm. but, um, 
that have been in trouble in the past with distributing yeah. this content. Well, and yeah. I mean, I'll call someone out specifically. Um, go for it. Like, I know specifically that four of our survivors that we've worked with have had videos of them when they were minors being raped on Pornhub. Um, and, and Pornhub has, has hosted, you know, dozens, probably hundreds, maybe even thousands of these. And, you know, there's some great organizations that are looking to kind of expose that, um, you know, and I'm not going to, I have my personal opinion on, on pornography and the implications it has on society and, and families. But despite that, like anyone just independent of what you, what you think about pornography, um, like we can all agree or at least I hope we can all agree that a child being raped should not be something that people can just go and view whenever they want. And every single time that's video is viewed, you know, the hundreds of thousands of times, like it's, it's like, it's just exploiting that child again and again and again. And so, you know, it, the, definitely the pornography uh, industry plays a role um, in that. And I, I know specifically that, um, you know, victims of human trafficking have been, um, videos of them being raped have been posted on, on, on platforms like Pornhub. And so it's, uh, it's difficult, but like that, that, that whole thing about the U S consuming and producing more child pornography compared to other countries. I mean, it's being produced and consumed everywhere. Um, but it's just, I mean, here's the thing, and this is why I want to point out like when these, we talk about these big numbers and yes, they're staggering, but I mean, I think all of us would be on the same team if we knew that just one child was being exploited this way. Right. And it's these individual stories and, and I can share some of them um, as this podcast goes on, but it's, I, I, we always try to remember that it's about the one, you know, if we spent these last, you know, eight years or no, seven years of OUR's existence, raising money and, and assisting law enforcement. And that resulted in one rescue of one child of one human being um, from being exploited. Like it's a hundred percent worth it, you know? And, and that's really like the type of mindset we have to have, like who knows how big the problem truly is, but as long as one child is being exploited, as long as one victim of human trafficking uh, videos are being are being shown online on pornographic websites. Like that's a problem with me, right? And I think I think you guys would agree. Absolutely. And you know, if that was my child out there, mm -hmm. I would hope that someone else would feel the same way. Of course. And you know, I don't know. I, Pornhub's been in the news a bit recently. There was one uh, one woman in particular. I'm terrible with names. I can't think of it right mm -hmm. now, but there was one woman in particular who's was raped in an alley. Um, she was an adult, but she was raped mm -hmm. in an alley and her rape video was posted on Pornhub and she tried to petition Pornhub to take it down. And Pornhub mm -hmm. didn't want to take it down. And then it's after it's a lot of money, it makes a lot, lot of money. It's a lot of money. And after a lot of pushback, Pornhub eventually put it, you know, took it down. But that's the other thing. It's, I don't even think Pornhub's an American company. I, I, I'm not sure. Um, no, they're not. I think they're based somewhere out of Europe, but they're based, they're based out of, um, uh, Montreal, Canada. Can okay. So Canada, which is even more disturbing to me, mm -hmm. like it's disturbing in general, but you know, you think Canada, I mean, that's mm -hmm. skipping the jump away and it's, it, 
the There's regulation. A lot of people fighting against that particular website right now, and mm-hmm. they're recently I had seen that they were gonna they were pushing to force them to take down over a hundred thousand videos that just was child porn or sex sex trafficking. Well, there's no there's no gateway. I mean, you can create an account. They say that the account is verified, but there's no gateway to verify content. And they don't have like a moderation team like YouTube has to take stuff down that passes through. Mm-hmm. And you know, one thing when I I said I wasn't going down the super rabbit hole, but I'm going down a slight rabbit hole right now. Don't mind me. But um, <laughs> when when that first story broke of the woman who's you know, video of her being raped in the alley um, came up on news. I started diving down that rabbit hole pretty far, um, looking into a little bit more of Pornhub. And it was disturbing to me, some of the articles I was reading, some of the biggest searches on that website were searches that said things like underage minor, you know, put some sort of disgusting Mm -hmm. word behind that, or, you know, underage girls or this, like it was all like the number one searches on this site involved in some way people trying to search for someone who is underage Mm -hmm. that should be telling right there like that's disgusting Mm -hmm. and and these people doing the searches like nothing's as far as i'm tracking or i was able to research and read nothing was happening to them and there's 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 ways to find these people who do these searches um but nothing's going on yeah, it's definitely it's hard. And, and we really have to ask ourselves as a culture, like what what kind of culture? I mean, so let's just say, let's just use this number, even though we don't know what it is. So there's an estimated 2 million um, children who are being exploited for sex, you know, being trafficked. Um, you know, there's that that number of f- over 40 million um, images of child exploitation material reported. And that was just the images that were reported, right? Um so like you ask yourself, what kind of demand justifies that supply, right? And that's a scary question. And that's a question we really have to ask ourselves. But, you know, there's there's a million things we could talk about. And, you know, uh, for everyone listening, I hope you're not just like getting to the point where you're getting too disgusted with it all that you're leaving, because there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And and, and I hope that we can uh, get talking about like, what, what are some of those things that we've been able to do in order to, to bring light to those who have been exploited. And, you know, there is true healing and goodness that's happening. And that's, and that's where we're at, you know, with the, mm-hmm. the layout of the podcast for today. So we got to lay down the foundation, a foundation you know, for our audience to go on. And it's, it's, it's setting the, the stage mm-hmm. for why this is important. And so for people in our audience, I know that's why I pre-warned before the show started, this is uncomfortable and it, it's not something that we'd like to talk about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in my volunteer work with human trafficking and raising awareness, I've ran information booths where I've just gone and tried to engage someone in conversation and they'll smile and then they'll look up at the banner and says human trafficking and child sex slavery. And immediately their demeanor will just change because it makes them uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable talking about it, but we need to talk about it. And one of the biggest points is going to be education. Yeah. Now, OUR has an amazing website that has some great resources available for people who are wanting to educate themselves. Um, 
can we go over, Hayden, briefly, some of the main points on how to spot victims of human trafficking? Yeah, of course. Um, so first off, I would just recommend anyone, uh, we're going to hit briefly some of this stuff, but if you want kind of more of an in-depth look, um, and to get an actual training, we have a training, you can go to, um, uh, ourrescue.org. Um, and I believe it's under the join the fight, um, uh, little button at the top and then, um, it's get trained. So you can get the, you can get trained on this, but, uh, when it comes to, you know, spotting victims of human trafficking, um, you know, like I said, I, okay, it's, it's a very difficult thing because a victim of human trafficking could be a girl who goes to school. She goes to church. She has, she, she may be a part of a family. She might have a good family or she might, you know, be more in like a group home or, or live in a broken family. And, um, she might not be someone who's being taken, you know, and she might not be like in an airport or in places like that. Like that does happen definitely. Um, but really the best ways you can spot someone who who's potentially being trafficked is, um, recognize, you know, if they have any visible, um, signs of abuse, you know, um, if they're with someone and that's that person seems to, be, or they seem to be very concerned at what that person like of like, you know, making that person angry, or if it seems very much of like a, a master servant kind of feeling with that, that, that might be a view that that person is in a, in a bad uh, situation. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of like the big forms of human trafficking, like if you see someone that has like a, maybe a tattoo or something that seems like a brand, um, like a branding, then that's definitely like an extreme form of human trafficking. Um, but really it's just, if you, if you see someone that is in distress, if that looks visually, you know, exhausted, abused, um, is it just looks like they're in a bad way. Like just go talk to them and like, try to learn more. Um, and you know, if you, if you feel like someone is with them that may be trafficking with them and may be dangerous and you got to be creative about how you do that and you don't want to do anything that's going to hopefully cause more or that would cause more abuse to her or could put you in danger. Um, but really it's just like, looking out for people who look like they're having a bad, because that's what someone's going to look like if they're being abused and they're being, um, you know, exploited in, in terrible ways, they're just, they're going to look, you know, run down and, and sad. And um, it's just, it's important that you look for those. But I mean, in terms of specifics, like I would highly recommend anyone who wants to go through the training to, um, to kind of go through that and, and get more of an in-depth training on on how to spot victims of human trafficking and for the training for our audience that's listening i've actually gone through the online training it's it's mm -hmm. around an hour in duration so i know a lot of moms or anyone who's listening we have busy schedules busy lives but it does go into a lot more depth and I, everyone can basically spare an hour i mean we can find something you know have our morning coffee go through um it's interactive it's it's great it's a great mm -hmm. breakdown of what we're talking about here but in more detail um so hayden with the next point which also goes into more detail with the online training um 
human traffickers themselves. I think Hollywood has painted this picture that they're so obvious. They're, they're evil looking They're mm-hmm. you know, they stand out, they look a certain way. Um, how would you recommend for people listening right now um, mm-hmm. are some of the ways that you can spot a human trafficker? Yeah. So human traffickers, like not every human trafficker has like a face tattoo of a scorpion or something. You know what I'm saying? Like sometimes we think that like all bad guys are going to look like that, but it's not true. Um, and so when it comes to just spotting a human trafficker, I can't say that there's going to be a, a type of person that has an MO, you know, it's not, not every person that exploits children, you know, has like the mustache and like the really thick Coke bottle glasses, you know, or like, there's not someone who just, you look at them and you're like, that's a human trafficker. So the best thing that you can do is especially, and we're going to talk about this later about protecting your kids is um, just teaching, um, you know, healthy boundaries for your kids. And if you see someone who maybe seems to be overly aggressive, um, you know, with someone or abusive or controlling, you know, uh, maybe holding on to someone's arm the whole time when they're walking, um, just seems like they're, they're exerting, um, exuberant amounts of control. Like that's, that's something to watch out for. And, and what, what should you do? What should you do if, if you see something like that? And that's, um, really what you need to do is call law enforcement. Um, don't call operation underground railroad. We get calls like that all the time, um, of people, um, reporting and, and we will always say, call your local law enforcement. And that's what you need to do. Um, if you, you can also call, um, the human trafficking hotline. Um, and, uh, don't yourself, don't put yourself in any compromising or dangerous situations. Um, if you can keep eyes on, on the suspect or, um, the person as long as possible. Um, but really you want, you want law enforcement to be involved when it comes to something like that. And would, um, would it be a good idea to also take a picture of them? So that way, when law enforcement shows up, they can at least have a picture if they're not there to help identify the people. I mean, potentially, if you can, I mean, like I said, you don't want to put yourself in a, in a dangerous situation. Right. I mean, if you can subtly sneak a picture, like that's, that's definitely going to be helpful. And probably gathering just information, like making mental notes, making mm-hmm. models of vehicles, license plate numbers. Yeah etc direction of travel um mm-hmm. all stuff if you were thinking if you were to describe a scene to someone else um, yeah more information the better and sometimes like if you can't take a picture anything can be helpful mm-hmm. to law enforcement and with the information um that we mentioned before for the the hotline all of this is going to be in the description for the podcast so we're going to have a lot of useful links um later on in the description that you'll be able to access program into your phone and go onto websites and explore this in more detail as well um, for everyone who's listening right now now before we move on to our next point I know one of the things that I think a lot of people wonder is like, okay, we have someone who's a victim of human trafficking. Mm-hmm. They get rescued, you know, they're, they're removed from the situation, but then what? Can you describe to our audience, Hayden, what happens after a victim is rescued? And is there a difference between mm-hmm. domestically here within the United States and then what OUR does overseas helping mm-hmm. victims? 
I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, you know, the rescuer, the extracting them out of the, the exploitative situation, that's only half of it. Right. Um, but there's so much, um, healing that needs to be done after you've been abused that way. And so, you know, our mission really is twofold. It's, it's rescuing, um, victims of human trafficking and then providing aftercare services for them and domestically and internationally, it looks, it looks about the same. We don't, um, own our own aftercare facilities or safe houses ourselves because it would just be incredibly inefficient. We, we wouldn't be able to, we'd be limited by our money and resources to be able to get that going. And so we actually partner with vetted aftercare homes. We have an aftercare team and they're heavily involved with the aftercare process um, for all of our survivors. But um, we uh, partner with awesome organizations who are already providing the resources necessary. And then what we'll do is we'll take uh, that survivor there who's already under the OUR wing and then many times we'll take the whole organization under the OUR wing and provide funding um, and other necessary, necessary resources for the whole aftercare facility um, to make sure that not only our survivor, but all the survivors there are getting the proper um, care necessary. So what that care kind of looks like is, um, you know, a lot of times, especially in the, the worst cases of human trafficking, um, you know, medical procedures are necessary. Um, you know, the, the abuse can be very, very damaging to their body. And um, we've actually provided them with, you know, surgeries in order to restore health. Um, for example, you can see one of the, one of our stories on our social media of a, a young boy named Andrew, who was trafficked and was actually, he was a victim of child sacrifice. Um, he was taken and um, the witch doctors and child sacrifice is still something that happens quite often. And um, what happened was uh, this boy was, was unfortunately taken. Um, he was cut um, in the neck, which severed his spinal cord um, or did serious damage to his spinal cord. And like they were looking to drain his blood. And luckily he was, he was rescued before um, during the act, someone stumbled upon him and took him to the hospital and he was able to survive, but he wasn't, um, he lost, you know, movement in his hand and in his legs, wasn't able to, to move well. And uh, we were actually able to, to fly him here into the United States and someone did a pro bono surgery um, to help him to be able to walk and to, um, even run. And now uh, Andrew can play soccer. He can, um, you know, ride horses or whatever he's has, he has ability and he has his life back. And, and we were able to provide that because of the awesome supporters of OUR. Um, and, you know, we'll provide mental health services, um, therapy. Um, and, the other big thing is we provide education and vocational training. And so, you know, if you don't, if you don't provide someone who's been through that sort of scenario with a different outlet or a different way to make money, then a lot of times they'll return back because they know, you know, at least someone was making money from me by selling me for sex or whatever. So 
I could just sell myself for sex. And then what happens is they might be selling themselves for a while, but they'll eventually wind up in a similar situation where they're being pimped out or being trafficked. And so um, it's very important that we provide our survivors of human trafficking with ways to, you know, contribute to society and to provide for themselves. So we take that responsibility very seriously and we do the best we can in order to, um, to ensure that they can be happy, productive members of society. And sorry, I'm, I'm sitting here. I'm, I'm struggling to find the words to say mm -hmm. I was not tracking Andrew's story and mm -hmm. that is absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah. But I will say this. I mean, OUR is an incredible organization for mm -hmm. this reason. This, the aftercare for me was the biggest point when I dove into everything that Operation Underground Railroad was, because you're right. If you don't help them post-rescue, give them the skills to provide, give them the skills to cope, give them the, the surgeries and what they need to, to have their bodies and their minds heal, then that's not seeing it through. And that's what I feel OUR mm -hmm. is doing is it's seeing it through. And I know you brought up the revenue source. So I'm going to bring this back around to common misconceptions with human trafficking. And I know this is one thing that OUR has talked a lot about. And it's this common misconception that sex traffic victims, prostitution, they're prostitutes, it's the same. And that's not true. I mean, that's, that's, especially when you got to think about this. Now, I'm just trying to go from this from a logical perspective. If you are a victim of sex trafficking, mm -hmm. that's a lot of physical and emotional abuse that you are dealing with on a daily basis. We're not talking one or two times. I mean, we're talking with some of these victims hundreds of times and there has to be conditioning. There has to be other psychological factors that go involved to make a choice to, to go back into self like self selling for sex and going into this idea of, okay, well, I'm going to sell my body for sex, but that's not the mm -hmm. same thing as actual prostitution. Cause you've got to figure there's more going on behind the scenes in the past. That's affecting mm -hmm. the present. Um, can you talk a little bit about sex trafficking versus just prostitution, how they're not, they're not the same? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, trafficking is, I mean, that's the thing is in every country, it's a little bit different. They have different laws. So, um, you know, in some countries, uh, you know, prostitution and, and things of that nature are are all legal um, as long as someone else isn't profiting isn't making money off of the the transaction right and so that's kind of where the line is in a lot of countries and around the world so like if someone's prostituting themselves then then what happens is they are essentially receiving all of the compensation for you know the sex um, where trafficking um, would be a situation where someone is being exploited and someone else is profiting off of it um, in, in a big way. Now, every, every state, every country, 
has slight variations in the definition, but essentially human trafficking is someone who is being um, profited on and has been either uh, trafficked from one situation or from one place to another, um, or, you know, is being exploited in their, even in the place where they're, they're from. And so um, that's kind of like the broad, the big difference between it. And with, we talked about it a little bit earlier as well. Um, there are other misconceptions as well that follows around with human trafficking. Mm-hmm. And one of those being that family members cannot possibly be human traffickers. And I know we did touch on this slightly earlier, um, but do you have any statistics or stories that you can share from some of the victims who were rescued um, where family members were the traffickers? Yeah, well, it's in terms of statistics, I don't have any uh, specific statistics, but, you know, what happens a lot of times, especially in places um, in Southeast Asia, um, sometimes places in Africa is impoverished. It's almost kind of a part of their culture a little bit um, where it's like, hey, I've been blessed with this daughter, a daughter. And um, that means I can, I can make money this way. She's going to contribute to the family by making money this way. Um, and that's in some cultures. And it's, it's, it's tragic. Um, in other places where it might not just be a part of the culture, it might just be desperation that, that sends a family to doing this. So even here in the United States, um, there's been instances where, you know, a mother has unfortunately sold her, her 12 year old or eight year old on Craigslist, um, or on different social media platforms and people, guys will come over, she'll leave the house for the allotted amount of time. Um, and the kids will be abused. And so, um, the majority of human trafficking and child exploitation does not happen from strangers on a child. It's, if not, if, it, if it's not from family, um, so like the actual, um, like if it's not from a family member, then it's probably from someone else in their life. Um, if it's not from an immediate family member, um, whether it's someone, you know, from their school or from their church or wherever, right? So that's why things like stranger danger aren't really the most effective, I guess, to teach your child to be afraid of strangers. Um, But really what you want to do is teach your child to be um, confident and to understand boundaries, um, whether it's a stranger or whether it's someone that they know and that there's just certain things that are not okay. And you have to teach your kid that. And you don't want to teach your kid to be afraid, Um, especially, I mean, if we're going to talk about... um, you know, strangers potentially, you know, taking a child or something like that, they're not going to go for a child that looks very confident. They're going to go for the child that looks nervous and scared um, and would potentially freeze up, right? Like, it's just kind of like predators don't prey on the strong, right? They prey on what they see, what seem to be the weak. And so um, that said, though, the 
a lot of child exploitation, the majority of it is going to happen, not from a stranger taking your child and exploiting them, but from, from someone in your life. Now, I don't want all the moms listening to just start being suspect of every single human being in their life and, and being afraid to let their kids go over to friends' houses or to do this or that. And you, you're going to be the one who's going to set the boundaries of what's going to keep your child safe. But um, you just, it's very important that you teach your children boundaries um, and what is okay and what's not. And it, you want to do it age specific. And as they get older, you can be a little bit more detailed. Um, but use your own, you know, um, discernment to know how to address this with your individual children. Absolutely. Um, we're going to have a whole section on talking with your children um, about human trafficking. And before I move on, I just want to address one more common misconception just because I'm really passionate about this. And I hear a lot from mm-hmm. other moms because stranger danger is a common thing that I, I'm, I hear people say a lot. And the other thing is I hear a lot of moms say this, which is, oh, well, you can trust women, you know, find someone yeah. else who looks like a mom. And that goes to a third misconception, which is all human traffickers are males. Mm-hmm. And that's, not always the case. Women can also be traffickers. Um, do you have any information or insight that you can share with our audience on that? Yeah, some of our some of the worst traffickers that we've dealt with the Operation Underground Railroad have been women. Uh, one example is actually from an operation um, that happened in Colombia, and it was actually Miss Cartagena. She she was like the the beauty queen of Cartagena. And she was actually recruiting and trafficking young girls. Her whole platform when she was going to be Miss Cartagena in this beauty pageant was like helping the children, right? And so she put up this this fake modeling agency, you know, for children and was actually trafficking them through there. In many instances, especially when it comes to the more organized um, types of trafficking. So, you know, maybe three or four or five or even more members of a trafficking ring, quote unquote, um, there are women involved almost in all cases because, because there is that conception um, that we can, um, women seem to be more unassuming when it comes to human trafficking. And a lot of times uh, women play the role of the recruiter because of that, you know, most people will trust, they feel like they're not going to be exploited. Um, And so it's very easy for uh, an unassuming woman to go and say, Hey, there's this awesome job. Um, in this country, we'll pay for you to get up there. You're going to make this much money. They convince them to, to leave their home. And then when they get up there, then their passports are taken and they're, and they're trafficked for sex. Um, and so, yes, it's, I mean, evil, generally speaking, knows no gender. It knows no nationality. It knows no um, religion. It knows like it's, it's everywhere. And anyone could, um, you know, is capable of doing horrific things. So um, yeah, I hope that it kind of answers your question, but that is a, a misconception that is common. I'm. Oh, I have a question. Um, what are some red flags to look out for in predators or that mm. kind of behavior, I guess, if that makes sense? Yeah. So um, specifically with what I was talking about, um, if someone is offering something that seems too good to be true, you know, um, then be wary of that. Uh, so like if 
someone's very interested in your kid becoming a child actor or something like that. And they offer something that seems too good to be true. That's, it's not, it's not to say that any opportunity like that is going to be um, bad in essence, but um, just be wary of it. Um, also, you know, if someone um, wants to, is not okay with you accompanying your child somewhere to do something and they're very insistent they're like oh no parents aren't supposed to be here this is just this or that um but really i mean when it comes to if we're talking specifically about your own children like reading your child asking them questions um and just being try to be discerning um and you're going to be able to you know like like i said preventative that's that's what you really want you want to be able to teach your child boundaries what's okay what's not okay make them feel comfortable tell them that no matter what anyone says if someone hurts you you can tell mommy and daddy like no matter what like it doesn't matter what they say you tell mommy and daddy if someone touches you or hurts you you know and that's that's really kind of like the best thing you can you can do mm -hmm. I think that that's a really good point to lead into with these big promises of modeling and acting into what I'm seeing more and more on social media right now, which is social media is, there's so many kids on social media now, particularly on Instagram, mm -hmm. pictures, videos on TikTok, you name it. And I feel like with an opportunistic underground organization like human trafficking or more specifically child sex trafficking social media has to play a very big role in in all of this um are the are there any statistics or any information that you have available or even um, examples from victims who have been rescued where social media played a role in either having them um, found by traffickers or in the exploitation of them that you can share with our viewers? Yeah. So I actually recently, I had the opportunity to be around some of our law enforcement, uh, our domestic law enforcement partners, and they work in the internet crimes against children task force of their prospective cities and States. And I, I asked them the same question. I was like, what role does like, social media play and the exploitation of children. And um, it's, it's crazy, like through, uh, for example, like a, a game that a lot of kids play Roblox. I don't know if any of your kid, kids have played that, but it's this online game. And um, here's the thing is like, this is, this is what is, can be dangerous. And what is important is you should always know the nature of the games that your kids are playing or the, the sites that they're using. So, you know, you growing up, depending on, you know, what generation you're from, when you played a video game, you were playing against a computer, right? When you played Pong, you were playing against a computer or you're playing Mario against 3. someone else with you, right? Or Mario, right? Um, but a lot of times now, a lot of the games that are being played um, are not against the computer, but they're against other people online. And there's chat features and, and things of that nature in these games. And so what can happen is, you know, I was told a story of a seven-year-old who um, had a friend, made a friend on Roblox and um, the person was supposed to be their same age and they had talks and they talked for weeks on end. And he, like this person eventually ended up convincing the seven-year-old to send pictures of herself 
in different poses and of things like that. Um, and it obviously was, um, an older man who was doing this. Um, and he, luckily they got him, they got this guy, but, um, that's just an example of how, you know, social media and online gaming can be used. Now, you know, our, our broad mission at OUR is to stop human trafficking and, and child exploitation. So there, there, we say that in the same breath, right? Because you know, this child wasn't necessary. A child doesn't necessarily need to be taken from their home or physically touched by another individual to be exploited, but things like that, um, and especially during this year where, where children are home and online more than they ever have been, um, people are finding ways, creative ways to exploit children. Um, you know, most computers have webcams. Um, all phones have cameras. Um, iPads, which like iPads, I, every yeah. parent, like I, I swear, has some form of a, of a media device that at some point, you know, maybe not all the time, but mm -hmm. some point use, but yeah, iPads, how many times like myself as a parent, I've handed an iPad, mm -hmm. you know, off to my son, like, Hey, I've got to do this. Here's an iPad. Yeah. Like it's, it's so readily available uh -huh. nowadays. And you can actually look online to type in like, I think the word is sextortion, sextortion. It's like extortion. Um, but like there's stories of like, um, there was a tragic story where a young boy, um, he was online and uh, gosh, it's like tragic. He, uh, someone convinced him who wasn't his, who was saying that it was his age, but it wasn't his age. Um and was saying it was someone, but it wasn't. And they convinced him to send like nude photos um, and inappropriate photos. And what happened is this person then turned around and said, like, if you don't send more and if you don't do this, and I'm going to send this to your parents. And like they did their research. And while they were becoming friends, they found out their parents' names, found out different places where he lived and things of that nature. Cause the child's just unassuming. He's talking to someone else, a, a potential friend, you know? And then what happens is I, I, in this specific case that I'm talking about, this young boy unfortunately took his life because he felt so ashamed um, about this and things like that have been happening. You can look that up. And so it's just very important that like you set ground rules for your kids and, and more than anything, like making them feel comfortable to be able to talk to you in these sort of situations. So like saying, if you, if anything ever happened, and you did something that you knew you weren't supposed to, like you can always tell me and I won't be mad at you and I love you no matter what and I just want you to be safe, right? And um, it's just uh, these predators, they're very creative and the internet is just a, before you had to actually, you know, be in contact with the child in order to exploit them, right? But now with the internet, you have access to essentially millions of children um, that are trusting and unassuming. And it's just kind of a, it's a breeding ground for exploitation if you don't um, set proper boundaries. And so I've shown my niece, um, sorry, uh, how I went on, sat there on my computer, showed mm -hmm. my niece because she was, she already had gotten in a group chat with some of her friends that invited some boys that they didn't know. They were from Iraq. They tried yeah. to friend request me and my meme all because she was here visiting. Mm -hmm. so they tried. And so of course she got her phone taken away. It wasn't her fault, but we took it away and stuff. And I went on there. I went on Facebook. I went on her brother's Facebook page, 
stole, went to one of his friends, but wasn't even connected to me. I stole one of his friend's pictures. Mm-hmm. I deleted it, of course. Okay. And I made a fake Facebook page and showed her how I can pretend to be somebody else mm-hmm. and showed her that just because you met somebody on social media doesn't mean that they are who they are mm-hmm. and that you need to be cautious and watch who you're telling things to. Yeah. And, you know, never give out personal information because she's one of those girls that is mm-hmm. very trusting. Yeah. So, you know. And, and because children, they can't comprehend that someone would want to hurt them, right? They don't have right. the heart to do the same thing. And um, yeah, it's, I think a great thing to do is teach, you know, and here's the thing too, is like, I, I'm representing OUR um, and like this interview has a lot of like me talking officially about who you are. And then I'm a human being too. And I have my own opinions, but I think it's, I think it's great to, you know, maybe teach, Hey, if you don't know the person personally, like if you don't have a personal relationship with them, then don't add them on social media um, and don't converse with them on social media. Um, and that's, that's something that's, that would be, um, yeah, it would, it would help in, in keeping your children safe online. And I but think one resources out there. Sorry. I just want to say, right. look at resources online. So one of, one of the big resources, and I had to dig, I'm not going to lie to find this. So before we even mm-hmm. did this show, I'm like, you know, Facebook and Instagram, they have to have something in place, like a, a guide to parents. And after like 30 minutes of searching, I kid you not, I actually found it. It does exist. I'll post a link in the description of the podcast, but I think one of the big things as parents um, is as we mentioned earlier about video games, like, yeah, I, I'm a, I'm a big gamer today. So I, I play a lot of video games, but you know, for a lot of us growing up, we played games and stopped, but you know what? The times also changed. Mm-hmm. It's not just playing against the computer anymore. It's very much interactive online communities and with social media, it's always changing too. And with parents, I don't think we're always on the, or in the know, I should say. Sometimes we have these social media accounts, maybe we use them, maybe we don't even have one, but our kids, like I know my son who's 10 is a lot more tech savvy than me in more ways than I care to admit. And sometimes, now this is just me personally, I think as parents, one of the best things we can do is also educate ourselves. We might not be big into Instagram or Facebook or even online gaming, but if that's something that we do have our kids doing like if we're okay with that part of helping to protect them is is understanding how these platforms are used um and one of the big things is like for instagram there's this entire packet called a parent's guide to instagram that provides information on how you can set privacy settings how you can limit interactions as well as time on these social media accounts which honestly like i said i didn't even know this existed and it took some time to find it but we can also do that. Learn these platforms, learn these systems, because if you're just going in blind and like, Hey, I want to talk to you about Instagram, but you've never used an Instagram might be a little bit more difficult. Not trying to judge anyone. I'm just saying, having an in-depth understanding of what it is that you want to talk about mm, can serve some benefit. 
Yeah, that's really good. And and just one other thought to go along with that is like, if your kid came home from school and was like, Hey, I want to go over to so-and-so's house. And he listed off all the people that are on these online games and they're going to be there too. You're not going to let your eight-year-old kid go and hang out with some 51 year old and this person and that person, and that person. But for some reason we feel comfortable. And, and I think a lot of it is just um, miseducation. Like we feel comfortable with our kids, you know, interacting and talking with and playing with and chatting with people from who knows where. And there's just this, there's like this uh, veil of anonymity that lives within um, these social media sites and, and gaming sites that you just, I mean, I, I don't, I don't ever want to have someone, we live in a time where technology is, it's just everywhere. We need to know how to handle it, but it's just very important that as parents, we make sure that we mitigate risk. Uh, you know, in the, in the military, they don't teach you, they, they teach you risk management, right? So there's never a situation where there's zero risk, but what you're trying to do is, is mitigate that risk as much as possible and still accomplish the mission. Um, and it's the same thing. The other thing they teach you in the military, right, is uh, to do proper recon of the enemy or the or whatever it may be. And so you need to understand the potential um, damage that the enemy can do. That way you can learn how to navigate um, and potentially um, fight. Right. And so it's just it's important things to do. Do your recon and also uh, make sure that, uh, yeah, that you just you understand everything that's going on. As painful as it may be, I have friends, my own parents included, you know, when, when social media was like first becoming a thing back in the days of MySpace. Um, and it, I got it. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming to learn these systems. It's overwhelming to understand all the features that they have. And heaven knows they're always updating and changing things constantly, but it should be part of our life if we want to have these conversations to at least have some baseline knowledge on them. And like I said, I'm going to put some links available to parents for information on how you can look at Instagram, Facebook. I'll even do the same thing with Xbox and PlayStation as well, because there's also whole forms available um, for parental settings in those regards as well. Now with social media, bringing this back around with law enforcement, you talked about the Internet Crime Against Children Task Force, I believe. Yes. What are some of the ways that law enforcement are taking this, you know, I hate to say it, but it's almost, it's such a huge pillar in our society now, the use of social media mm -hmm. and youth being on social media that um, it's not going anywhere, mm -hmm. at least anytime soon. So how is law enforcement preparing to kind of shift into this mindset of helping to protect children on social media? What are some of the tools that they have at their disposal? Um, that would be good for parents to know. Yeah, of course. Well, so, I mean, when it comes to how is law enforcement, I mean, this, I mean, if you think about it, 2009 is when the iPhone one came out, right? Like the very first smartphone that had access to the internet. So it's only been 11, 12 years almost um, since we've really entered the internet age, right? We had desktop computers before, but like most of everything that's been happening on the internet and social media hasn't happened since before 2009. I think 2012 is when Instagram first came out. Like all of this is so new. And so law enforcement um, has been doing a, a great job and I feel like they're finally um, they're, they've caught up and they're, they're understanding how to use um, social media in investigating 
um, potential uh, child exploitation cases. And there's also just, there's so many tools available to law enforcement that we just don't, we're not going to get the civilians um, to help them to be able to track down uh, potential um, predators um, and also to be able to identify um, potential victims. And so um, I, I can tell you this, that like our, our law enforcement here in the United States is, is definitely, you know, catching up and, and using these social media platforms to, to investigate and, and doing the best that we can, or that they can to, um, you know, mitigate risk. And uh, that said, though, it doesn't mean that, that more couldn't be done. And, and one of the functions that we provide at OUR is we'll provide training to law enforcement, uh, both domestic and foreign, on how to um, investigate child exploitation cases, um, how to use a social media and how to use other digital forensic equipment, um, to gather, um, Intel. And, uh, but it is, it's, we, we just live in this world where crime is happening online on the dark web on, you know, the normal internet that we all use, like crimes happening there. And so, um, law enforcement is doing their best to keep up and, and understand how, uh, these criminals and predators are using these platforms to exploit, um, children. Can I add something real quick? This goes along with what you're saying. There was a show. If anybody wants to look it up, this guy decided to step up and help get parents to realize, see, if their kids are really listening. So they staged a fake Facebook page, kind of like how I was showing my niece and invited these girls to go sneak out when their parents weren't home and their parents were actually in ski masks in the back of the van that the kid got into. And as they're driving down the road, realizing they're being kidnapped, their parents grab them and they have a talk with them because these kids aren't taking their parents serious. So, if you have a teenager who's maybe not taking it serious, maybe not going that drastic with it, but how do you think that we could try to really get through to them that this is a serious problem? It's not just something that our parents are just trying to scare us with. Yeah. Um, I mean, fear, I, I'm not a proponent of using fear as a motivator really in anything. Um, really, I mean, educate them. What is age appropriate? So as they get older, slowly start to educate them and you can show them more and more and more. Um, but show them shows like that. Um, show them that. And, and I really, I think a huge part is, is making your children feel comfortable to come to you about anything. Like they make any mistake, they do anything stupid, like letting them know that your number one priority as a parent is to make sure that they're safe. Um, and, if you do that, then you're going to be able to mitigate a lot of risk because a lot of times children will find out they're in a world of hurt or they, they've made a mistake, but because they're afraid or they're ashamed, um, they'll keep that and they'll hide that from their parents until, until something really bad happens. And so creating a culture of openness and understanding within your family and among your children, especially when it comes to things of this nature, um, I think it can do um, a lot, but yeah, educate your children as they grow older, what is age appropriate and, and show them that this is something they really should uh, take care to watch out for. And that's a big thing that falls back on our shoulders as parents is we have to create an environment where we are approachable. If everything that you use is punishment and fear all the time, 
you know what they say is bad news doesn't get better, you know, with time. Um, kids will hold on and they will hide stuff for as long as possible in order to fear um, further punishment from their parents. And so that's one thing I work on a lot with my own son is like, look, um, I want you to be open. I want you to be honest with me. And if you come to me and you tell me like, that's, that's what I care about. Um, and, you know, it's not easy as a parent to have some of these difficult conversations with our children. And I know that people in our audience right now are probably sitting there thinking of a few things like, okay, well, I've heard statistics, I've heard resources. Um, I've heard some, some heartbreaking stories of what has happened um, to some children. And how, how do you unpack this? How do you talk with your children about you know, human trafficking about the horrible things that can happen to them, because obviously I'm not going to tell my 10 year old, like, Hey, if you, you can get kidnapped and be a victim of sex trafficking, he doesn't understand what sex is. He's 10, um, compared to like, if he was 16, how this conversation would go. Um, do you have any insight or advice maybe that you've heard from other parents or that OUR has found to be helpful on just getting this conversation started with our children? Yeah, speaking, um, you know, from myself and not necessarily from OUR, um, there's a lot of good resources out there on like how to teach your children about sex that is age specific as they grow up. Um, I think really important to just teach your kid those boundaries as we talked about earlier, like no one touches you there. That's just like, that's a, that's no. And like, if you ever, if someone does, then you come and tell me and you're not in trouble at all. You're, you're not in trouble. I just, uh, we want to make sure that you're protected and safe. Um, but yeah, you slowly, you, you want to teach your children. And like I said, there's tons of good resources online. If you just look, um, there's, there's books like there's, I can't remember the exact series of books it's called, but there's like a, a book that's like, what do you teach your kid about sex from, you know, four to six. And like, you don't teach much about sex from four to six. You pretty much just teach them about their own body. Right. You don't teach about actual sex. Right. But what it is, is it's, it, it pretty much just builds these building blocks. So that way, when the time comes that they like, you need to have like a, the more in-depth talk, right. About it, that there's, they have those basic building blocks and it's not a necessarily an awkward topic. And so, um, yeah, you, you're right. You don't teach, you don't need to be teaching your eight-year-old the details about sex or anything like that, but, um, you need to be teaching your children boundaries and, and things of that nature. So, yeah, I would just, I would, I'd recommend people. There's also podcasts out there. Um, so just, I mean, Google is freaking awesome. There's a lot of good things. There's a lot of bad things that you can get to from Google, but there's a lot of good things. So, um, yeah, look at all the resources you can on, on how to help you with that. Cause that can be a hard question to navigate as a parent. Sometimes I've come to find that as a parent approaching difficult conversations is I've had the difficult conversations with other parents. Like <laughs> I, you know, I've spoken with my mom and my sister, like, Hey, you know, what have you done? Or I've even practiced with myself, you know, mm -hmm. like, Hey, I'm just going to go ahead and have like a back and forth dialogue with myself, you know, just prepping different scenarios and how things can go. And that makes it a little bit more manageable, I think, from mm -hmm. the parental perspective. Um, now with social media, with these conversations, I want to drive home two scenarios. Mm -hmm. yeah. now, the first scenario that we can deal with um, as a parent, I hope no one has to, but that say, hypothetically speaking, 
we've got a child, let's say teenager, young teenager, 14, 15, who's on Instagram, right? Mm -hmm. Posting pictures, posting selfies, because that's what you do when you're a teenager. You know, you take a bunch mm -hmm. of pictures of yourself and get likes and comments. Um, and let's say that this individual in this hypothetical scenario is approached by a stranger who wants to meet them on social media. Mm -hmm. And you as a parent finds out about it. Mm -hmm. <sighs> That's a hard one. Mm -hmm. That's a hard one. Um, do you have any advice or maybe stories of where this happened um, to some victims who were rescued, who were approached by a stranger on social media and it ended up being a bad situation to either kind of drive it mm -hmm. home as a point where this can happen or as a way to discuss it as a parent, um, how we can talk about it with our children if this scenario does come up. Yeah. I mean, one thing is, uh, I mean, do your homework. Uh, I mean, it, it, obviously there's, there's a million details that we could plug into this scenario. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, like you don't, you don't want your child meeting a stranger off of social media um, in, unless it's in a controlled situation, like the person comes over to your house or something or not even that, right? Like you don't like, it's, it's very, it's very hard. And it's, it's weird because we live in the age of like Tinder and dating apps. Right. And so like, essentially that's what people are doing because you could create, I mean, they have the shows about catfishing, right? Where someone creates this profile and then they meet them in person. They look nothing like the pictures. And like, this is something that happens. And I mean, teenagers are hard. I mean, I have a teenage sister. I don't have any teenage kids, but I have a teenage sister and I just know how hard these conversations can be. And it can cause a lot of strife, you know, like she'll probably get mad at you or he'll get mad at you. Um, but at the end of the day, like, uh, you want to do the best that you can to keep your child safe. And, um, you know, this, uh, this is a scenario that you don't, you don't want to be in. And, um, you just, sometimes as a parent, you just have to lay down the law, I guess. But yeah, that's a, that's a hard one. You don't, that's, that's difficult. And that's why teaching from a young age about this and, and creating habits and an understanding about social media and why this is wrong from the beginning um, is, is so important because you don't want to find yourself them. They don't, you want them to find themselves or you to find yourself in this situation. Absolutely. And that's one thing that I, I don't have any teenagers right now, but I come from a very large family and I have a few younger cousins who are in that teenage, you know, spectrum. And they've had this before, particularly mm -hmm. with my female cousins who are teenagers, some guy, some cute guy who is represented on Instagram and, and people like, they can go into a lot of detail with fake profiles. I mean, they will take pictures from someone else's profile and pretty much mirror it and change the name. And you're not even going to mm -hmm. realize that that's not a real person because it looks convincing. And so anyways, one of my cousins went to go meet with this guy, she was 16, you know, so she can drive, you know, she's not mm -hmm. really going to ask permission as a 16 year old. And thankfully she was in a public situation um, and not a private one, but this, this guy that showed up looked nothing, nothing like the guy on Instagram. And he was a lot older. Um, she was really 
nervous. She was really worried. And she had some of her friends who happened to be sitting at a table nearby um, that were able to, to be there for her. But that mm -hmm. situation could have gone south really fast. Yeah. So I just think there's this thing with teenagers where there's this idea of what you see online is real and that's real life. Yeah. You know, us as adults, we realize, okay, you can Photoshop, you can do anything online. You know, what you see isn't mm -hmm. always what you get. It's not mm -hmm. always real life, but in the mind of a teenager, that's well, not always the not. case. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I showed know. her, you can create a Facebook page with anybody's photo. Facebook does not have it unless you set your settings mm -hmm. private. You can steal anybody's photo on Facebook. Anybody. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I can make myself look like a Calvin Klein model on Facebook and try and pick up all these chicks and I'm some girl from Alabama, you mm -hmm. know, just pretending to be somebody, you know, anybody can create anything. Mm -hmm. And it's, I'm careful at 33 on who I put on my pages because I've got pictures of my kids that people could steal and I don't want that. So, you know, being cautious. Yeah. Well, and I think brainstorming here, Amber, you know, your tactic of just being direct with her and being like, hey, this is what can happen might be one of the best tools as a parent to have just to show them like, hey, look, it's this easy to create a fake profile or it's this easy. I mean, to catfish someone or, you know, whatever the scenario is to show them like social media isn't always reality. Um you know, and like you were talking about Hayden, creating that foundation of that relationship with you and your child to not only have these tougher conversations, you know, geared age appropriate from a young age, but also being open and approachable are all tools that you're going to need to have, I think, in order to be um, prepared mm -hmm. for this type of scenario, um, mm -hmm. or at least as best prepared as you can be. You know, the other scenario, and I know we talked about it briefly a little further back is, you know, what should you do as a parent if someone offers your child an opportunity, you know, that it's too good to be true. Hey, I want your child to be a model. I want your child to be an actor or an actress mm -hmm. um, scenario. Like, yeah. like you were talking to what down in Columbia, that's horrible. Mm -hmm. So is there any recommendation you would have for a parent if your child or you are approached by someone talking of or speaking of your child rather um, for modeling or acting that could help them to decipher, hey, is this something that is a potentially real opportunity? And mm -hmm. is this something that is potentially a lot more, ah, I'm trying to find the right word here, mm -hmm. uh, shady? Criminal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Um, one thing, I mean, speaking for me, not necessarily OUR, I think that it's uh, those, those, you know, industries, the child modeling and child acting industries, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of examples of harm that's been done, even, you know, for some of the most legit, you know, like in Hollywood and things of that nature. So it's just, I mean, it, you as a parent, you want to make sure that your child's safe. And especially if you have a young child, like they might be modeling or acting for money, but like, it's not like you should just drop them off at work and be like, all right, I'll pick you up after work. You know what I'm saying? Like they're still children and 
there you should be present depending on the age for as much of that as humanly possible you know i would never drop my kid off um you know to have pictures taken of them um and then just pick them up after a couple hours you know and that's that's me speaking as hayden you know and um but yeah it's just uh do do your um like do your homework on the agency or on or on the company you know that's that put this offer forward ask if you can speak to other parents maybe that have been involved try to find other parents of children who are involved like um you know just be smart and uh don't be naive right so yeah that's what that's all i'd say for that second scenario and i would almost piggyback a little bit on it too um because you would think common sense would be, I'm not going to drop my child off, you know, at some, you know, modeling agency if I've never spoken with or met. But, you know, there's also something to be said about doing some research too, you know, kind of finding out some more information. Um, when I was younger, I did a little bit of modeling back in the day. And my mom was always present. Um, whenever I did a shoot or a show, she was always there with me, period. But there were other models who their parents would literally just drop them off or they would go off somewhere else distracted in conversation. And that was it. They weren't there. Um, being present is huge. And unfortunately, like I said, I saw firsthand um, parents who weren't present. Um, and one of the beautiful things about social media or not, sorry, social media, but the internet just in general, and, and I guess to an extent, social media is you can find reviews. You can find reviews. Now, granted, you can always pay for reviews and whatnot, but you can at least get a better understanding of the legitimacy of an organization or a place by at least trying to look up like, hey, how long has this place been around? What are people saying about it? Um, do I know anyone who's worked directly with this place or heard anything about it too? which just goes into that whole educating, you know, going in and doing self-research. Now, none of these scenarios are going to be perfect. They're not going to be cookie cutter. Um, and not all of them are like someone wanting to meet or modeling opportunity. Not all of them are necessarily going to turn out to be sinister, but it's just being prepared as parents. So this isn't a scare tactic to anyone who's listening. It's just trying to get us engaged in thinking like, hey, how can I help protect my child from being a victim, you know, and to an extent, like what are things that I can look out for to help protect other children from being victims? So it's just getting that conversation going and that ball rolling um, and not necessarily just being scared or just even depressed about this because it is a very, very heavy topic to take on. But that being said, one thing that I think that helps make this topic um, seem a lot less helpless and a lot more hopeful is looking at ways to get involved. Now with OUR, we talked about briefly how there is online training available. That's free. Um, once again, I'll provide the link to the site in the description of the podcast. But Hayden, what are some other ways um, that people can either become involved with OUR or learn more about human trafficking or resources that they can do to help um, either donate to OUR or help, you know, 
victims of human trafficking on the backside with these aftercare facilities, just as a, as a general foundation for people who want to do more. Yeah. Um, first off, I think you guys are the, the perfect example of what you can do. Um, everyone here, everyone that's listening has a network. Um, and they have people in their lives, they work for organizations, whatever it is that they have, they have something. And it's it's using that platform and that network and sharing um, the truth about human trafficking. Uh, you know, we compare the plague of human trafficking a lot to the plague of slavery. And there's similarities and there's obvious differences as well. Um, but in terms of the solution, I think a lot of it, I think a lot of it's the same. It's about the average everyday person standing up and saying, I'm not okay with this. I'm not okay with this being a part of the society um, that I'm a part of or being in the community that I live in. And, and that's really one of the biggest things you can do is raise awareness about human trafficking and about organizations working to, to stop it. Um, you know, Operation Underground Railroad has done incredible things um, for thousands of victims or now survivors of human trafficking. And we're going to continue to do that work. I was recently, a week ago, I was on an operation in Central America um, where um, luckily um, it was successful and we were able to extract um, survivors from human trafficking. And these were young survivors. I'm talking, you know, seven and nine years old um, from a, a situation where they're being exploited. And so I have no problem sitting here. And because of the experiences that I've had, you know, I've met survivors that have benefited um, by the donations of others, you know, and here's the thing is these operations, they cost money, the aftercare, it costs money. And so like, some people, you might feel weird sometimes, like, before, you know, working for this cause, I would feel weird asking for money, but I don't anymore because I know where the money's going to. I know that, you know, there are children and human beings that are being rescued from terrible situations and being put on the path of healing and recovery because of what Operation Underground Railroad is doing. And so if you want to make an impact, like a, an impact in someone's, in, in, in a real person's life, like, um, giving money to Operation Underground Railroad is is definitely a, a way you can make that impact. Um, so if, if you're interested in learning more and, um, you know, supporting, whether it is as a volunteer, as Whitney is, she's a volunteer and she goes and, and shares about the message. Like if you want to do that, you can sign up at um, OURrescue.org. Um, go to join the fight. You can sign up as a volunteer. You can take the training that we talked about earlier. Um, and then it's really easy to just to donate and to, and to watch your, your money, you know, like to, to actually get some skin in the game, you know, to say, I'm doing this to fight human trafficking. And, um, yeah, but yeah, I, I appreciate you guys. You guys are showing the example, like everyone else, not everyone has a podcast, right. But everyone has a network. We have, you know, organizations and companies, you know, everyone, um, most people work for a living, you know? And so you work for an organization and that organization probably does some sort of charitable giving. Um, and so learning, 
to find a way to be able to use that network as a way to raise money or to raise awareness for human trafficking. Like there's always something you can do. Yep. Everyone at any given point can help end human trafficking by empowering themselves education, you know, to spot victims, to spot traffickers and what to do on the backside. Um, the educational video, like I said, it's, it's only an hour. Um, there's the documentary. I'm going to butcher the name again, Hayden. So I need mm -hmm. your help. Operation two saint. It's, it's okay. kind of weird. I think it's spelled T O U S S A I N T. Um, it's actually, it's named after, uh, he was an abolitionist in Haiti and that's where the operation takes place. But he was an abolitionist in the 1800s, um, that led kind of the rise of the slaves, um, or the, the enslaved people against their masters in Haiti. And so it's kind of named after Toussaint Louverture is his name. It is mm -hmm. an incredible documentary. And like I said, it's available on Amazon Prime. Um, you also have a link through the Operation Underground Railroad site that can um, help hyperlink it to you as well. And I cannot, like I said, I volunteer with this organization. I've been with them for about a year. I'm part of the Central Texas group out of Austin. And it's an incredible, incredible group of people to work with. Now, I really, really appreciate everyone who has taken the time to listen to this podcast. Like I know it's not the easiest topic to talk about. It's, it's hard. You know, even volunteering, I have problems sometimes, especially when you hear the stories, you just got to realize like, if it's hard for me to listen, how is it for the victim who's going through it? Or the parent who is waiting for their child to be found that doesn't know where they are. I mean, and that's what gives me strength to, to push through, to make a difference. And I really appreciate everyone who has taken the time to join us on, on this podcast. And I want to spend the remainder of this episode giving some final remarks to not only my two co-hosts from Drinking Mommies, but also to Hayden as well. Um, is there any final remarks that either Amber or Nicole that you have that you would like to give for the show? Um, actually, I had a question. Um, what are some of the typical positions you see predators um, tend, to, tend to kind of go, go for? Like teachers, you know, things like that that you guys typically see? Mm, that's a hard question. Um, Cause like I said, uh, from any backgrounds, you know, teachers, church leaders, um, like anybody, like <laughs> that's the thing is I don't, I don't want to create mass hysteria and have everyone be afraid of every human being on earth, you know? Right. Cause that's, oh, this, yeah. it's not, it's not the fact, but um, you know, just be aware and understand the relationships that your children have with any adult that they have in their life. Um, and just make sure that you feel good. Trust your gut. Like as a parent, like you have, you know, your gut, your conscience, whatever it is um, that will kind of tell you what's right and what's wrong, you know, and trust that. Um, so sorry, that's not really like a direct answer, but um, hopefully gives a little insight. I know it's, it's, it's so hard because predators can occur in so many shapes and forms. And yes. it's, it's 
one of those things, I think falling back to being a parent, having that open line of communication with your children, especially being able to sit there and be like, Hey, someone's talking to you this way or trying to touch you in a way, or you just feel comfortable, like uncomfortable in this situation. You need to talk with me and know that I'm here to listen. Um, Amber, do you have any final questions or closing remarks for Hayden? Um, well, so, I mean, I've told you what I've been doing for my niece. I've been very close to my niece. I have kind of guarded her, I guess. Um, especially cause I do have all boys, but even before I had my own children, she was like one of my own. And she was one of those that if you handed out a candy bar, she would take it and run off with you. And so, you know, knowing, you know, teaching your kids, you know, you know, it's kind of, it, it, I find the words. The old fashioned thing was never take a candy from a stranger. It kind of true, but in nowadays they're also offering a lot more that seems excitable. You know, they want it. They want to do something exciting. You know, they want to live like the movies, you know, trying to keep them grounded and realistic. You know, we want them to dream, but like you said, teach them to be cautious, know who they're talking to. Um, my nine-year-old, he is autistic. He goes up to every single person. If it's a man, he tells them they're handsome. And if it's a woman, he tells them they're beautiful. And he wants to make friends with everybody. And he will just all of a sudden just start telling things about his life. And of course, you know, I don't want to burst his bubble because he's such a bubbly person and he loves people. But I also want him to know that he has to be cautious. He can't just trust everybody because he meets them and they look pretty or because they look cute, just like finding boys on social media, because it looks like a cute picture of a boy doesn't make it so. Um, so I've had to be careful on how I've been teaching him because he is autistic. He is very intellectual, but mature level in his mind is not at his age level. But he is around people that are more mature than him. So then he comes home with questions. So I guess just my side of, you know, having a child who has a disability um it's a little harder to teach sometimes but mm -hmm. he does understand nobody touches you there if somebody does touch you there you tell me you know you, you know like you said he's never going to be in trouble for anything I've always told him I want him to be able to come to me and talk to me and you know so just don't give up you know fight back that's what it's going to take yeah, absolutely. With, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit different. You guys have boys and they're a little bit older. Um, but I'm a mom of three little girls. We're extremely cautious with our girls. We don't, I've never done the daycare thing. We don't do public school anymore. I homeschool now. Um, and any sports they're in, we coach. So we're extremely cautious with them. We don't do internet. We don't do social media, online games, nothing. So I'm aware of all of the possibilities of all of that stuff. We have nephews that are older. Um, I think when they get a little bit older, we'll be a little bit more open to allowing them to do certain things. But until then, we're very, very sheltering, I guess you would say. I would um, say with you're involved. You're, you're very involved. Like I, I Absolutely. wouldn't even say very protective. It's involved, but you're also focused on age appropriate because your girls yes. are, are, are so young. It's harder for mm -hmm. small children to always articulate um, some of these more complex things. Like someone makes me feel uncomfortable. Like that's not always easy to do. So I, I wouldn't say shelter and I would say age appropriate. Like you, you, you really are, you're, you're involved in your girl's lives. 
<laughs> and with that being said, ladies, I'm really, really happy that both of you were able to join us today. And with Hayden, do you have any closing remarks for our guests? I just want to say thank you. Um, I appreciate your passion um, to fight against human trafficking. Um, and I'll, I can speak for here. Oh, you are like, we're, we're going to continue this work, um, no matter what, um, nothing's going to get in the way of us, um, doing our best to, to rescue and rehabilitate, um, more survivors of human trafficking. And, um, you know, everyone has a role to play, whatever that role is. Ours is a little bit more hands-on just because we have, you know, the background and skills necessary to do that. Um, but everyone has some sort of role. And so my invitation to all of you is to find out what your role is um, and to do something about it. Don't let the, the feelings that you've had during this podcast um, just kind of fizzle away. Um, but continue to um, let that fire burn um, into action. So thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Hayden. And thank you to all the volunteers at Operation Underground Railroad for all the work that you do every single day. Yes, thank you. To everyone thank you guys. in our audience, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us to follow through with this podcast. And we really look forward to having you join us for our next show, which will be coming up the second week of March. Thank you everyone again. Have a great week.